join me in a word of prayer? Father, we pray that you would get glory and honor today through your word as it is unfolded to lead us to Christ. Holy Spirit, work in the word. Work in and through the word that you have revealed to us to unite us to Christ because we need rest. Lord, we need rest for our souls, true rest. Not merely not doing things or going on a long vacation or being a minimalist or retiring early. For none of those things can truly satisfy the waters that rage in our souls. We need the rest that only you can give. So Jesus, would you be our rest? Not only the Lord of the Sabbath, but Jesus, you are our Sabbath rest this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we do live in, in a very restless world, don't we? A world where we are trained, as it were, like Pavlov's dog to never quite be satisfied because the moment you're satisfied, they have nothing more to sell you. We live in a restless world. And I mean, ironic that it's daylight savings. God bless you. You're here. Your clocks went off. You got up. You're here. And, you know, all these studies they've done on daylight savings time about just how it messes with our internal clock, circadian rhythm, the increase of traffic accidents, uh, you know, be careful out there, folks. It's a restless world. And people without sleep are some of the most dangerous folks around. When I was a new parent, I, I felt like I could go, you know, a couple days without sleep. Now, one night with bad sleep has a serious and ongoing effect. We need our rest depressed. And yet, it seems like people have a really hard time resting. We, we love to be stimulated. We are fearful of being alone, even for a short period of time, with ourselves and with our own thoughts. And so, recently, they, they ran uh, a pretty significant quantitative experiment. They gathered a, a very diverse, demographically diverse group of folks. And here was the experiment. You have to be in a room alone with only your, yourself and your thoughts Nothing else, you know, white walls and a chair for 15 minutes. No stimulation. Just you and your own thoughts. It's an experiment about boredom. But on the wall, they put a little machine that if you touched it, gave you a significant, although not deadly, electrical shock. Not merely a stimulation, but a ow, like it would hurt you. But it was better than nothing. And what they learned in this experiment was that 80% of participants, 80% could not go 15 minutes without walking up to the shocker that they knew was going to shock them and hitting it. It was better to be shocked. It was better to feel pain and stimulus than it was to sit alone in that room with your own thoughts for 15 minutes. There was even one guy that they measured 180 times. He poked the shocker, just couldn't handle it. We live in a restless world. This is to say nothing of the news that we read, not that we shouldn't read the news. We should be informed. We should be praying not only for ourselves, but our city, our state, our country, and what's going on around the world. But this is really one of the first times in human history where you can basically not only know what's going on in your town, but in the whole world, all the bad things, because if it bleeds, it leads at once. And not only know what's going around as if you're reading, you know, the New York Times 100 years ago, but you can see videos of it. 
This has resulted in what many have referred to as compassion fatigue. It's too much. We weren't made to be able to know about all these things and care about all these things at once. That's something that only God can do. And this is to say nothing of your own personal to-do list. Which if you would stop, you know, in the middle of a sermon to think about it, is, is bound to just get longer and longer with all the things that need to be done. It seems to be incessant, unending, restless. And yet perhaps this is the reason that God knowing us, us being made in the image of God, gave us as a good gift Sabbath. Gave us as a good gift rest. In one sense, in one sense, rest always in Christ. Even in the midst of the storm, you can close your eyes and know, I am in Christ. I am his. He is mine. And yet the Lord also wrote this into our lives in a very practical way by commanding his people to have one day every week where they stop from their work to rest. And yet what happens? God gives a good gift. Indeed, he commands his children to obey him in the goodness of that gift. And they had rules. They had all kinds of rules. Not just about rest, but how you're supposed to rest. And are you resting rightly? And if you're not resting rightly, that's a problem. And so Mark, who is bound to show us that King Jesus is truly our final rest in his finished work, gives us these two stories about the Sabbath. And as we dive in, I want you to to do this, to see yourself here, to imagine yourself as the disciples picking heads of grain, as the withered man whose life is deeply marred by by his disability, as the, the crowds who are, who are watching and wondering, who is this guy? Who is this wild Galilean rabbi who not only speaks with authority, but proves it by healing miracles and stands up to the religious establishment of his day? And especially, I want us to see ourselves as the religious leaders. Because <laughs> as John said last week, we, would, we should dare not caricature these folks. The rabbis as a guild, as an order, had been around for about 200 years. Excuse me, the Pharisees. They were not some sort of, you know, official special ops unit of the Jews. They were concerned, pious citizens who wanted to ensure that God's people were living holy and pious lives. A volunteer organization, a watchdog group, a discernment blog on steroids. How are we like them? How do we tend to judge when people aren't following your rules? I don't like how they're eating. I don't like that dude didn't take his hat off in the restaurant. I don't like how you didn't clean your room. It should be done this way. This is my way. It's my preference. This is how my family did it. How are we prone to judge based on our rules, which are so often a matter of our own tradition and preference? Simultaneously, how do we sense that maybe we're earning God's favor by doing those things? This was a major problem for these guys. They were in God's covenant community by grace through faith. They had been circumcised. They had the Passover meal. They believed in the promises of God, but they had completely misconstrued and misinterpreted the reality of those promises. They'd moved on from from grace now to, I got to get God's favor. I got to work. I got to earn. 
So the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson tells this beautiful story about two Jews on the day of the Passover. One of those Jews had a really good day. He was extra Jew that day. He was super Jew. He did all the Jewish things. He was Jewing hard that whole day, obeying, loving, all the things. The other Jew had a really bad day. He said some words that Jews aren't allowed to say. He got upset with some people. He hadn't repented and believed in the middle of that anger. He didn't forgive. And yet both of those men walked into a house that evening with blood over the doorpost. And D.A. Carson asked a simple question. Which one was more justified? The guy who had the great day, living his best life now, a good person, or the other Jew who messed up big time again and again? Which one in the house covered by the blood of the lamb was more justified? So where do we try to earn? Where do we falsely believe the burden of the rules placed upon us, the ones that we place upon ourselves, and especially heinous, the ones that we place upon others? And as you see yourself in these stories, how does Jesus help? I want to look at a few things. The first is that the Lord commands us good gifts. The Lord commands us, his children, good gifts. This is the background and the beauty of Sabbath rest. We need to start here. Verse 23, one Sabbath. So what is a Sabbath? And what did this mean for the Jews, in particular in Jesus' day? What did it mean for the religious leaders? Why is it so important? And and why does it matter at all for us today? I mean, certainly this would have been one of those stories that Thomas Jefferson would have applied his scissors to in the Bible, right? Like, I'm just going to cut that one out. We don't need that one. We, you know, Sabbath, what, what's this have to do with today? Well, the first thing I want you to notice in the Bible is that Sabbath doesn't begin in Exodus 20. It doesn't begin as the fourth commandment. You will keep the Sabbath day holy. You will honor the Lord and you will trust me and you will rest. No, it begins in the creation of the world. It begins before sin. It begins when you have Adam and Eve who are both tough and hardcore and smart and they're eco-butlers, stewarding, warrior, poeting in this garden and making things glorious and beautiful to the glory of God and in the love that they share with each other. And that's where God gives rest. On the seventh day, he rested. He didn't need to rest. He rested to show us that we need to rest. God created the world in seven days. The seventh day is a day of rest. And so rest is baked in, not as a command to this little wandering nomadic Semitic group in the Sinai called the Jews in the days of Exodus, but to the entire creation. It is a gift. It's a gift. You see, in Egypt, there was no rest for the slaves. In the Greco-Roman world, there was no rest for the slaves. The douloi, the servants. You worked every day, man. You were a machine. When you got used up, you were discarded. We use you until you're done, your strength is spent, and then, you know, adios. God says no. Man needs to rest. Man is made not just for work, not just for gain, not just for getting and growing and building and making money, but rest. And if you read the Genesis account, it's fascinating. 
I hadn't noticed this until I began to study the Sabbath idea, but every day, day one through six, has a morning and an evening, except the seventh day. There is no morning and there is no evening on the seventh day. And this was God's plan, having created the world and created man, blessed the world and blessed man so that man could bless the world, that man and God and the world would live in that blessedness, in an eternal and unending rest. So it brings us to Exodus 20 then, when God's people are rescued. Don't miss this. They are saved by the grace of God. It is God's grace in action that saves them from the Egyptians who could have annihilated them. They are brought through the gracious picture of baptism, the Red Sea. It is a covenant of blessing unto Israel, and it is a covenant of cursing unto the Egyptians who are destroyed by those baptismal waters. They are brought to the, to the Lord's Supper, as it were, the, the table, the Passover table of the ongoing manna. They are fed by God himself. So they are God's rescued people and brought into a relationship with him. And it is meant to be a relationship that is based on God's gracious disposition to them as his children so that the commands of God that he gives them are given as a gift, not as a do this and you will earn my favor and stay in my good graces. Rescued into relationship, given the spirit of God who dwells at that point in time in the tabernacle through the sacrificial system, believe in me and walk in these ways and you will live. So the commands were never intended to be a way that the Jews would somehow earn God's favor. But the heart of man is deeply broken and deeply sinful. And we often take the good gifts and neglect the giver on the one hand. On the other hand, and with equal sadness, we make the gifts an end in and of themselves. And so Jesus here is confronting not the law. Jesus loves the law. Jesus fulfilled the law for you so that you have any hope at righteousness. Not one jot, not one tittle will be erased from the law until all is fulfilled in Christ, in his perfect life and righteousness. But legalism, legalism, this idea that by keeping the law and adding to the law, you can somehow earn God's favor, judge others who aren't, and earn your way to his acceptance. This, of course, creation, exodus, all looks forward. Because the eternal rest of our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, was lost in the garden because of Adam's sin, because he took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, I want to be my own God, make my own morals and live my own way. But God has been on a plan from then, starting small and growing his seed to bless every tribe and tongue and nation to bring the garden back, to recounsel, that is, reconcile his people back into his arms by grace through our trust in him so that we might have that eternal and forever rest. So the Sabbath, even in the days of Jesus, looked forward to a new garden, a new heaven, a new earth. The coming again of the eternal Sabbath rest. Messiah would come. The prophets told all about it. Messiah would come, conquer the enemies of God, and will finally, in this restless world, we will finally be able to get back to the rest of God. Restored rest is on the way. The king is coming. 
So you can see why, because of creation, because of command, and because of the future where this is all going, the end times, that this was a big deal for the Jews in Jesus' day. To honor the Sabbath meant to stop, to stop working and striving and being about the things that you need to do to live in this world and to just stop and rest and trust. Because just like those people alone in the room for 15 minutes, this is not easy to do. It must be believed. It must be a part of our worship. To honor the Sabbath was to trust that God would provide. The illustration that comes to mind, only because it's Sunday and I'm obviously craving the addictive chemical in said chicken, is Chick-fil-A. You always crave it on Sunday, the one day you can't have it. And I, you know, I read an interesting Business Insider, which I don't know how good that is, but business, science, woo, over the head, so with a grain of salt, okay? But this article basically said Chick-fil-A loses, you know, billions of dollars a year by being closed on Sunday, and yet, in the fast food industry, they are crushing every other business. Their yearly gains are 16 plus percent over what, you know, Per capita number of stores per city, all business mumbo jumbo MBA stuff say. And I think there's an example there. Not that you have to be closed on Sunday if you're a fast food restaurant, but that they're taking this principle to heart. We're going to work really hard all week. We're going to create a community and a family. We're going to make people want it when they can't get it on Sunday, and the Lord has blessed it. Holy chicken. <laughs> well, here's the problem Sabbath is a gift. It's a gift. And our self-righteousness can really ruin us when it comes to the gifts of God. Oh, the heavy burden of added. Key word. Added. A-D-D-E-D. For all of you that have A-D-D. All right. Added. Religious rules. The heavy burden of added religious rules. Our self-righteousness can really ruin us. Like so many of God's good gifts in the time of the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Sadducees, everybody trying to conjure up the kingdom of God, it was distorted. And so there had been a long tradition. Before Malachi, the prophets called these guys out time and time again. You're making all these sacrifices. You're doing stuff you don't even need to do. Your heart is far from God. The rabbis added rule upon rule. I like this little quote that I came upon. Uh, Tradition, also known as peer pressure from dead people. (laughs) And so we're not talking about the rabbis faithfully, mercifully seeking to follow God's law. We are talking about them adding a whole volume set, Encyclia Britannica or whatever it's called, step aside, of rules and traditions that were a huge burden on the people. Now, why? I'll tell you where my heart goes. You know, it it goes to sort of, uh, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century philosophy, Friedrich Nietzsche, others, power. Surely it had to be power. You know, they're just trying to like keep everybody under their thumb. I don't think so. I don't think so. Because this wasn't a very powerful people. There might have been some of that. It feels good to be in charge and know the rules and keep the rules while you don't. But I think the real reason here is piety. I think if we're giving maximal benefit of the doubt, oftentimes when we're feeling really religious and good and rule-keeping, it's because we think we're being more 
pious, more set apart, more holy. And, and we think that, that God's going to maybe smile on us just a little bit more because of that. By the way, there's a name for that. It's called paganism. That, that's how the little G gods in the pantheon work. All up there, you know, sleeping together and stealing your girlfriend and, you know, doing all the weird stuff that they do on Mount Olympus. You know, assuming that they wake up on the right side of the bed and that they have a, you know, a, a countenance of pleasure upon you on that given day, that, that's really the heart of paganism is that I need to be, be kind of good, better, and do the right thing so the gods will smile upon me and rain on my crops. For the Pharisees, their striving toward holiness was a belief that, that in their holiness and their goodness and their preparation, preparing themselves with the law, that they would usher in the Messiah. They would usher in the age of God's King who would save the world from these wicked, evil, law-breaking Romans. And so in the Old Testament, there's, you know, give or take 420 clear commands, 420 Clear commands about how God's people should live with one another in community, bless each other, love God, love your neighbor. But they said 420 isn't enough. Let's add. And add, they did. I want to provide a few examples. There are many. Use the Google and you can find many examples, but I, I, I kind of like these. Uh, this one pertains to the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they said you can only walk a Sabbath day journey. No further. You walk any further than a Sabbath day journey and you've done work. And God says, no, work on the Sabbath and you're not allowed to do work. Sabbath day journey was approximately 800 paces or 1,999 feet. If you went 2,000 feet, uh, 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 you you broke the law. You broke the law. You could receive a charge. It was serious could have real consequences for your life and your wife and your family and your food. I mean, give me a break. Whenever we do this thing with the law, it makes us ridiculous. It makes, by necessity, it makes you ridiculous. And by the way, a stench to the world. Just a stench. We're told that the aroma of Christ, the great sacrifice, rises up to the Lord and should go out to the world. Like the glorious smell of, you know, a plate of chili rellenos right in front of you. This is a stench to the world. This is what the world sees and goes, yeah, I want nothing to do with that. You can watch what you can do, 199,000 or 1,999 steps, 2,000 and you're in trouble. No thanks. Here's another one. When it came to writing letters by hand on paper, which some of you have heard of, You could write one letter, not two. Two letters was doing work. How about if you ripped your clothing? I mean, you're walking around and, you know, you drop your ancient rabbi, you know, bobble and you go down to pick it up and, can you sew on the Sabbath? Yes, you can. One stitch. You better make it count. Depending on where the clothes rip, you can't do two. That's work. And pertaining to the man with the withered hand, I mean, all the rules on medical stuff, I mean, they're just so ridiculous. But it basically boiled down to, if it wasn't life-threatening, or the Pharisees hadn't deemed it as life-threatening, you couldn't do it. So broken arm on the Sabbath? Just hang out. 
dislocated shoulder, you're fine. You're going to live till tomorrow. Nobody can do any work to fix it. Now, I want you to see two things. Not only is this a parody of the gifts, so it's a mockery to God of the gifts, but it's dehumanizing to God's greatest gift to the world, which is his images, men and women made in his image, who were made uniquely among all creatures, plant and animal, to give him glory. It's dehumanizing. So they added these rules. Rules upon rules. Now Jesus breaks one of their rules when they pick the heads of grain because they called that harvesting. They said he was working. To which he responds, are you serious? Picking a head of grain is harvesting? Like just getting a little snack is harvesting and then we're going to take it to the marketplace and sell it and work on the Sabbath? That's why he says the Sabbath is for man. Not man for the Sabbath. And for the record, he wasn't breaking God's law because Deuteronomy 23 is very clear that, that Israel was, allowed to, was supposed to leave grain on the edge of their fields so that those who were aliens and strangers and sojourners passing by, even on the Sabbath, might have something to eat. But he is charged with harvesting. It's even worse for the man with the withered hand, as I already hinted about some of the medical rules. And yet this word withered in our text, it's kind of the Greek connotation of the word means that it had been dried up for a long time. So just, do you see how the, the law doesn't just make us a parody? It's not just full of irony, but it really leads to evil, an evil view of human beings. Here's a man with a withered hand, which in that culture would have been absolutely devastating. And, and rather than allow that man to get help, the Pharisees say, that's not life-threatening. He's had that for a long time. Who cares? He's learned to live with it. It's just wickedness. You see, for this man in this culture, especially where there were no wheelchair ramps, having his hand healed would have literally represented not only the regaining of his own dignity as a man of standing in that community, but it would have felt like a literal resurrection. And that's exactly what Jesus prefigures here. He does indeed bring the power of the resurrection to bear on this man's hand. So you are in big trouble, folks. You, me, religious people. If our rules are skeptical of or prohibited of the resurrection power of Jesus in the lives of the people around us. Think about that. Living by the law is death. Paul, Paul puts it this way in Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. The law reflects the perfect character of God. God is good. The law is good. But sinners living according to the law are death. No, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. The law reveals our need for his grace in a savior. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, that is my sin nature, therefore the sins I do, my need for grace, seizing an opportunity through the commands of God produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Just go tell a two-year-old one thing they can't do and see what they try. Just, you can't touch that. That's Paul. That's humans. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, 
But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. And the religious leaders have brought death upon this community, burden upon burden. They have made the law an end in itself. They have focused on the gift over the giver. They have bound the consciences of the people apart from God's word in slavery, taken away their freedom. They have a heart of self-righteous piety. And so Mark wants us to ask humbly in our own hearts and write it down. Where do we do this in our day, in our culture? Where do we do this? Where do we bind others and burden others? Where do we take away freedom? Where do we add rules? You can't dance. You know, you can't have a TV. You can't do this. You can't do that. Should we be careful? Of course. Should we pursue holiness? Of course. But whatever we add rules that aren't in God's word, we must be very careful because those, Jesus tells us, are not based on the freedom of his grace, but fear. A complete misunderstanding and distortion of the gospel itself. So into all this, Jesus reclaims God's gift for us, shows us the true way to understand the gifts. I want to be clear, Jesus transgresses, transgresses their tradition. He's not shy about it. The man with the withered hand, he says, come on up here, let's do this publicly. He's not hiding anything. There's no secret knowledge. There's no secret religion. It's all in front of everybody. He wants to show them The Sabbath was meant to be a gift. The love of God fulfills the law. Don't give rules about me being able to heal this guy. Let me heal him so he can have his life back and experience resurrection. He transgresses their tradition, but not the law itself. And did you notice where Jesus goes? It's really fascinating. I would encourage you two to meditate on this much longer. Because Jesus doesn't say, I don't like your rabbinic tradition. I'm starting a new rabbinic tradition. This new one is cool and it's super liberal and edgy and I'm Jesus. I got long hair and skinny jeans and an awesome beard and my disciples are rowdy fishermen and we're cool. He doesn't say that at all. He says, what about David? Let's go to the Old Testament. Let's put tradition aside for a second and let's go to the Bible. In fact, he he insults them. He says, have you not read? These are folks who had read the Bible so many times They basically had most of the Old Testament, we consider the Old Testament, memorized. He's not anti-law. He wants the word of God to be the standard, not man's standards. And so he says, look at what David did. It was an unusual circumstance, but David is your hero. He's the very sort of a Messiah you're waiting for, and he did this very thing. You haven't brought a charge against him. Why would you against me? Jesus goes to the word of God. And as he does, he makes a very audacious claim. He lays claim to his own identity, not only that David is the Messiah they await, but that he is the true and greater David. He is the Messiah himself. How do we know that? Because he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is really the hinge point of these two stories, where Jesus makes this claim, which for them undeniably would have been a claim to divinity. The Son of Man is from Daniel chapter 7. We're going to see this again and again in Mark. It's Jesus' preferred way to speak about himself. And in Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel says that the Son of Man will come in his glory. And he will basically do two things. He will destroy evil, 
judge God's enemies, and he will restore the kingdom of God. That was what they understood the Son of Man to mean. Jesus lays claim to that title for himself and then adds to it in a way that it would have deeply offended the religious leaders because the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus lays claim to his identity. Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. And he proves it. He doesn't just say it, he proves it. This we know, this we can trust in Jesus. He doesn't just say, he proves. You see, what's so ironic about all this, what's so ironic about legalism, is that in the very breath that the Pharisees are saying, don't do any work on the Sabbath, don't heal, don't break the law, they're literally plotting to kill Jesus. (laughs) This is what the law does. It makes us a, a, you know, a festering cesspool of legalistic ironies that everyone around us finds obvious, but we find in ourselves as a way to justify ourselves. Jesus heals on the Sabbath, they plot to kill him. They're even plotting with the Herodians who are worse than the tax collectors they were upset with a couple verses earlier. Their piety is a cover, they are hypocrites. They keep all these little small rules that they added, but they can't actually keep the real rules of God. They can't love God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and their neighbor is their self. They're exposed. And yet it's the man with the withered hand. It's the hungry disciples who find and meet the mercy of Jesus. Mark does tell us that they get one thing right, the religious leaders. Jesus is either God or not. He's either the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, or he's not. And so the invitation to us this morning, not only organized religion beware, our legalism, our propensity to the rules, but to receive Christ, the greatest gift of God, that we might now appropriate properly the good gifts of God in our life and in the world. He's either God or not. He's either the one who brings the new garden and the resurrection and the power and the way and the life, or he's not. And so the question is before us, will you come? Not in works, not in rules. Will you come by faith to receive his grace? Will you stretch out your hand? The the thing that's been withered for a really long time, that you're full of cynicism and doubt about his ability to help with, will you stretch it out? Will you believe? Will you turn from righteousness by rules and to the one who is already righteous on your behalf? Because as the old hymn says, Jesus ready, he's ready stands to save you, full of pity, full of power, full of the very rest that our, long, our restless souls long for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much again for this good word for us in Mark chapter 2 and 3. What conviction. We do see ourselves here. We do see ourselves hungry like the disciples, looking on with awe and wonder and question, maybe even Doubt and uncertainty like the crowds so often. Deeply in need and yet kind of hopeless about it because we've tried and tried and tried like the man with the withered hand. And Lord, your grace does reveal to us our place with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders as well. We are prone to the rules. We are prone to judge. 
we are prone to think that the Jew who had a really good day was more justified in the house with the blood on the lentil than the one who had a bad day. We're prone to think so because, you know, that's just how the world works. And yet, Jesus, you've come to bring a new world by your finished work. It's not cheap grace. It's not easy believism. Jesus, you had to live a perfect life and then die for our sin, to forgive us of our sin, to bear the good and just wrath of God on our behalf so that you might give us, as the pure and spotless lamb, your righteousness. And this table is a reminder of that. So we come to feast, to dine, to rest. We come to this table to rest, not because we've had a good week or a bad week, but Jesus, because you had a perfect life. And we believe in you. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, and you claim us as sons and daughters to feed us from your grain, to heal and raise us from the dead. So would you do that now as we partake? Would you give us, by faith, the fullness of your true spiritual presence in this means of grace, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper? Christ, would you feed us and feed our souls? And may we find forever rest in you. Amen.